Thank you for downloading this podcast from Bromley Town Church. We pray this message will refresh and encourage you. For further information about Bromley Town Church, you can go to our website, www.bromleytownchurch.com. God is good to us all the time. And all the time, God is good. Amen? The Word of God says God is good and all of His ways are good. That's what it declares. All of His ways are good. And we've been singing about the love of God and the mercy of God. He is good to us. Let us pray together. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we come before you. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that sets us free from our sins. We thank you that we have been redeemed by the work of your Son on the cross. We thank you that we have been set free. We thank you that the things that have bound us, the work that was arrayed against us, the list that the enemy had that was opposed to us has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. We have died with him, but we have risen again with him. We bless you for what you have done for us. Lord, may your resurrection power, may the presence of your Holy Spirit fill this place that our hearts and our minds may see you this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you in God's house this morning. I want to welcome you as well. If you have been here over the last few weeks, you will have heard us preaching. You've heard me preaching about the prophet Elijah. And this morning again, we press in upon him. Now, it's quite interesting. When you turn to your Bibles in 1 Kings, that's where we see Elijah first appear on the scene to us in the midst of uh, the story of the kings of Israel. And uh, he doesn't actually last that long, if you like, as you go through the passages of the Bible. And in many ways, there's not that much of a story about him. And here we are, I think this is the fourth week. I can't even remember how many weeks I've been preaching on him. But I know this, that this man has something to teach us today. He might have lived thousands of years ago, but the things that he learnt in his life, the interaction that he had with God, has something to teach us. And therefore, as we're looking at it and different aspects of it, and some are slightly a repeat of what we've done the previous week, as we look at these things, it feeds our spirits and we start to learn more about what he has to tell us. Last week we looked at Elijah and Mount Carmel and this is the big story. As we're looking at it, there was a bit of a background, but this is the big story that's been going through the passages, through chapter 17, through chapter 18. And there's this big confrontation on Mount Carmel where Elijah takes on the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 uh, prophets of Asherah, there was a decisive showdown between them. There was a contest that was to take place because the children of Israel, the people of Israel, did not know who they were serving. They didn't know who God was. Yes, they had an idea that there was a God. You know, if we walk out in the high street now and we take a survey and we say to people, do you believe there's a God? They say, yeah. Many people would say, yes, I believe there's a God. Let me tell you this. The Bible tells me this, that even the demons believe there's a God. You know, there is a starting place, which is, okay, I acknowledge there's a God, but you know what? That doesn't actually get you very far. And this is the situation with the children of Israel. They were living in a culture. They were living in an experience that was religious. They were even saying, well, Israel is a, it's a religious country. 
Just as many people still say, well, well England is a, a Christian country. And these aren't bad statements to make by any means. But we want England to be more than just a Christian country. We want England to be filled with people who are living Christian lives, who are owning Jesus Christ as their Savior, who are displaying the power and the presence of God. Elijah went before the children of Israel and he said to them, hey, which God are you serving? Is it going to be Yahweh or is it going to be Baal? Who is God? People were silent. I'm not sure. I'm confused. How many people in our schools, in our places of work, are confused about who God is? They know the name. They know some bits. They know some Bible stories. Some people like to pride themselves on the fact that they don't go to church, but I know lots of Bible stories. I'm not talking about Bible stories. Who is God? Who is God? Elijah is burning. These people need to know who God is. This is absolutely essential. Well, the showdown took place. Elijah prayed a simple prayer, the fire of God. You've seen fireworks going upwards, right, last night. These bangs and explosions going off around the neighborhood, the buildings reverberating with the explosion. That's fire going upwards. These people saw the fire of God fall down. And it consumed the sacrifice. This wasn't Bryant and May matches, not even the long ones. It wasn't petrol being poured on. He'd actually had water poured on his sacrifice. God, show yourself for who you are. Show yourself for who you are. Display to the people your glory. The fire of God. It burnt up the sacrifice. It burnt up the wood. It burnt up the stones. It burnt up the soil. It burnt everything up. And the people declared, the Lord is the Lord. Do you notice at that point, confusion was taken away. The eyes of people. They had knowledge of who God was. Now stop just one moment, okay? Do you, when you're addressing your heart, do you know who God is? Do you want the truth? We're confused. We're confused. We're seeking for it. We need our eyes. We need our eyes. Please, God, that you will touch our hearts in such a way. This day was a decisive victory for God. His enemies, those who had been opposing him, those who had been instituting this religion of Baal worship, they were destroyed. But you know what? Let's just turn the clock back. Not from this day. Last week, was it last week we turned the clocks back? It was, wasn't it? One hour. Let's turn the clock back four years. Because it wasn't on this day that everything was sorted out. Probably about four years previously, if we reflect back to that time, that's when this actual confrontation began. That's the time when 
approximately, or we don't know for sure, but around that sort of time when Elijah had had enough. He was so moved by the plight of what he saw happening in his land that he went before God to seek God for change. There must be change. Something needs to happen. The men and women of his day were abandoning their moral code. They were looking for an easier life. They weren't looking to reject religion. They just wanted religion packed their way. No, we don't want to get rid of it. But we need to fit it into our lives. We need to fit it into our world. It needs to fit into the way we want. And of course, we go right back to King Jeroboam who did this. He said, you know what, people? You don't need to go all the way down south to go to the sacrifice at Jerusalem. Let's bring Jerusalem up to us. Let's have altars where we are. Yeah. No more long travels. Yeah. No more big bus fares. Yeah. Or donkey fares or whatever it was. Or even a camel if you were rich. No more of that. Make it convenient. In a day and age that we live in, people are looking for the convenience. Where can I fit my God into? Where can I put him? Where can he fit into my life? You know, look, I'm going to carve out space for, I'm going to carve out space for God in my diary. He is going to be able to have, you know what, two hours. Yes, two hours each week I'm giving to God. The king the one who has made us, the one who has given us breath, the one who sustains us, the one who has created the universe, the one who knows the purpose for our lives, why we were were created, who knows the position where we have been placed, who knows the family who is around us. He, what is allowed a little bit of time? Our perspective has gone wrong. We're living in the same type of environment that the children of Israel were living in in their day. They'd lost sight of who God was. They were trying to make everything convenient for the way that they wanted. Elijah, as a man of God, could not stand on the sidelines any longer. So he put himself before God, and he said to God, here I am. I'm ready to do whatever it takes. But God, you've got to draw my people back. You've got to make a change. Now the battle that was waged on that afternoon when Elijah called to God and the fire fell, the, the battle was waged on earth, or rather the outcome of the battle was waged on earth. But the real battle was fought in the heavenly realm. You know, when Elijah went before the prophets of Baal and he said to them, hey, this is the contest I'm suggesting. You know, you get your bull, I'll get my bull. We'll call upon our gods. The God who answers by fire, let him be God. Yeah. As I said last week, they had confidence that their God, who wasn't to be seen but was worshipped by them, their God who was in the spiritual realm was able to answer them. They had confidence of that. And so they entered into this competition. They said, yes, what you suggest, Elijah, is good. The power to accomplish the task was not resting with them, but was resting in the hands of their respective God. The power to answer was in the spiritual realm. And that is where the real battles take place. That is why I said this encounter for Elijah hadn't just happened that afternoon. The encounter for Elijah had been taking place maybe up to four years, five years before that, 
when he went before God to seek for change before his people. When Elijah first went to speak to Ahab, he had already gained the authority to overthrow the powers of darkness. And that was, he is the same. All he was waiting on was for God to signal the time when he would actually go and have the encounter. Now, we know that he had to obey God during that time. He was taken off into the wilderness. He was taken off to our friend, the widow, and had all those encounters during that time. And then, after a long while, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, go and present yourself before Ahab and tell him that the rain is coming. You see, God was orchestrating everything. But the battle had already been won. Elijah knew that waiting upon God was so important that he might be able to walk in the fullness of God's timing. And that is a principle that we need to learn today. But this morning, just briefly, because we haven't got that long, the point I want to bring out today is I want to look and I want to help us to see that this idea that it is in the spiritual realm where the battles really take place, that's what I want us to get hold of today. That's what we see with Elijah. Elijah knew that it was in the spiritual realm that the battles really take place. Unless you prevail in the heavenlies, you will not prevail in the physical world. So if we want to see change in the physical realm, there has to be change of rulership in the spiritual realm. That is the principle that this is talking about. And so I just want to look at a few examples of this. Firstly, we want to look at the life of Jesus Christ. He gained victory in the spiritual realm and brought that victory into the physical realm. But this isn't how we see it. We just talk about the stories of Jesus and the things that he did. But we need to understand that actually the whole of his work and his obedience before God was actually a battle that was taking place in the spiritual realm. At the very beginning of his ministry, before he actually went out to deal with people or to come into that, uh, that point of ministry, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Jesus went into the desert, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit, but he came out of that encounter in the power of the Holy Spirit. And having faced the different temptations that Satan threw at him, Jesus did not succumb but overcame by using the word of God. Remember that Jesus went into the desert to fast for 40 days. After 40 days, without food, you feel peckish. You feel as though I could have something. And so the enemy is thinking like, Jesus has come back to that point now where his body is saying, I need food. And so what does he say to him? Jesus, you need some food. Stating the obvious. So he said to him, Jesus, you've got power. Why don't you just say to these stones, Come, to it be, come into being as bread. And then you've got something to eat. Come on, you can do that. Jesus turns around to the devil and says, it is written, man shall not live on bread only, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Satan continues to bombard him, continues to tempt him, not with things that are outlandish. Listen, none of us get tempted by things that aren't attractive to us. We get tempted 
by the things that are attractive to us. That is why they are a temptation. That's why for some people, they can say, you know, some people say, oh, I've really got a real problem, I can't give up smoking. Some people say, smoking? <laughs> Nothing to do with me, I wouldn't even go near it. Some people have a problem to say, oh, I have too much caffeine or something. Another person would say, I never drink coffee, I hate the stuff. But the person who doesn't drink coffee, they haven't got a, they're not going to be tempted by having a cup of coffee put under their nose. They don't want it. But for the person that is, the person that has a problem with Krispy Kreme donuts, just a little waft under the nose. Walking down the far end of the glades, you have to say, whoa, keep away from me, Krispy Kreme. You have to be very careful because that temptation is pulling at you. We get tempted by the things that are attractive. Jesus was being tempted by the devil in many ways. But he kept saying to Satan, it is written, it is written, it is written. And finally, when he's being tempted to worship Satan himself, because Satan says, hey, Jesus, we all know you've got a mission. All right? I know you know. All right? Let's have a little quiet chat, shall we? I know what you know, you know what I know, sort of thing. Like, So I'll tell you what, you just bow down, worship me. Everything under my control, says Satan, <laughs> over to you, all done and dusted. No problems, forget the next three years, forget the cross, all... Easy. We want an easy life. Jesus says, it is You will worship the Lord your God. Away from me, Satan, he says. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then Matthew reports, then the devil left. And the angels came and attended him. Jesus then left the desert and went out in the power of the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. Now it's important, we look right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had an encounter with Satan himself and he had to overcome. It was severe temptation. He overcame. He started his spiritual battle. He was tearing down the strongholds and he used the word of God. He had to overcome. He was in a warfare, not only on earth, because these things were confronting him on earth, but this is in the spiritual heavenly places where these battles were taking place. And during his ministry, Jesus clearly taught to his disciples the need to overcome in the spiritual realm. He told them that they needed to do this. The Pharisees were attacking him one day uh, because Jesus was casting out demons. He was actually bringing the kingdom of God, the rule of God, down into the, into the spiritual from the spiritual realm onto the physical realm, and so he was addressing demons in people and casting them out. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow, Jesus, drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to him, every kingdom that is divided against itself will be ruined. In other words, hang on, guys, you're saying to me that the reason I have this power is because I am driving out demons in the name of the head demon. Can I just point out to you, if I continue to do this, and that was true, I would basically be destroying the kingdom. What you're saying is rubbish. That is, in effect, what Jesus is saying to them. But then he goes on to say, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. So the teaching that Jesus was giving to his disciples and those around him was this. 
Listen, there is a battle that needs to be won. You need to be able to tie up the demonic powers. You need to rule in the heavenlies. You need to gain victory in the spiritual realm. Because when the powers of darkness are bound, then you can go and rob the things that they're ruling over. But if they're not bound, then you're not going to be able to do that. So that was the teaching that Jesus was giving. And you know what? As we come to the end of Jesus' ministry, we also see that there was obviously that he had overcome. When you read in John's Gospel, and John's Gospel is quite interesting. It gives you lots of encounters about Jesus. But then when you start to get to, certainly John 14, 15, 16, 17, this is all about being in the upper room and Jesus just talking to his disciples. It's the end of his ministry. And you, so, you see this sort of a discussion time that they're having at that point. So John 14, 28, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he said to them, you heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak to you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. But listen to this. He has no hold on me. You see how important that was? See, Jesus was saying, listen guys, I'm going to be going to the cross. There's a big encounter. But Satan, the prince of the demonic powers, the prince of the evil powers, he has no hold on me. Why have you decided to leave me? I haven't sinned. I haven't fallen under his temptation. I have resisted that. As Kevin H. said to us earlier, the, the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life, he was the only one who could but he did live that sinless life, and he overcame. Later on, John 16, so you're progressing in the story, Jesus says to his disciples, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then in John 17, when he's praying to his father, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus knew he had done everything that was necessary. And his final cry from the cross is, it is finished. It is finished. See, what I'm talking about is Elijah won the battle in the spiritual realm. And then that was manifest on earth. So when he came to Mount Carmel and he had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, he knew already that he had gained the victory. He had bound the powers of darkness that these guys were plugging into. Last week I told you about the story of Joseph Koenig and the Lord's Resistance Army and how he, in this day and age, was doing the same thing in northern Uganda, plugging into the spiritual powers. I can see that many of you, perhaps even this morning, are slightly confused about this. We do understand, don't we, what happened when we go back to the Garden of Eden. We do understand that when Satan came and tempted Ab Eve with the fruit and was just saying to her, look, you don't need to put your trust in God. Listen, just have a taste of this fruit. God has said you're going to die when you eat this fruit. You're not going to die. You are going to become like him. 
this is your big opportunity. Until now, you've been trusting meekly in God. You've just been doing the things he tells you to do. He hasn't given you any harm, but you know what? You can have this. You don't have to trust in him anymore. You can just take this on board for yourself. That's what happened. At that point, where man had been appointed to rule over the earth, he gave that authority over to Satan. The Bible itself, I've got this noted down somewhere. The Bible itself declares that the whole earth is under the control of the evil one. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Why do you think the governments of the world are having problems making resolutions, whether it's trying to sort out a financial crisis or whether it's just trying to organize good government for their own nation? Why are they having problems? Why are they under influences? Because the whole world is under the control of Satan. That authority was given to Satan by man. Why do we have problems? in our thinking? Why do we have problems of evil coming to us? Why do we have issues where we're struggling with things? Because in the spiritual realm, there are powers and authorities of darkness that want to influence us and have the ability to influence us, but we need to overcome them. You see, the church has two things. It has the mandate to preach the good news that Jesus Christ is our Savior, it has the mandate to arise and take authority over the powers of darkness. Two-fold mandate that we have. We may be good at one, but we need to be good at both. Because we want to see the powers of darkness being broken. And we want to see the kingdom of God arise. We, in this church, and in many other churches up and down the land, want to see the spirit of the prophet of Elijah arising so that the people of God can be having showdowns in their own neighborhoods, breaking the powers of darkness, binding the strong man who is ruling over their areas to set the captives free. Why does it say in the Bible? It says that, it says somewhere, even if our gospel is veiled, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. So here we are aching for them, hoping that they're going to be able to see, telling them things, even putting Bibles under their nose, even wafting tracks over them, even putting it under their dinner plate, praying over their food, hoping that all sorts of things will make a breakthrough when the Bible says they are held in darkness by the powers that are ruling over them. It is time for the church to arise and to know that through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we seated with him in the heavenly places have power and authority to tear down those spiritual and to rule over them so that they might become subject to God. There are many stories which I would love to relate to you uh, that I've heard from John Melindy where they're talking about in some of the cities and the towns that they have gone about in Uganda and they have prayed 
and prayed for some time and had revelations of what is truly happening in the spiritual realm. And they have been able to pray against those powers and they have been able to bind those powers and then they have been able to come out and to do an evangelistic program and suddenly, whereas before they had done an evangelistic program and hardly anybody was saved, now they are seeing tens of people coming forward to know Jesus Christ because there has been a transformation in the spiritual realm. And this is what we need to work with towards righteousness. We need to learn how to deal with the forces of darkness in the spiritual realm. We need to understand that they are a reality. They are a reality. No, it's not just in the life of Jesus that we saw Jesus overcoming these things. We see the same in the life of Paul. If you go into Acts of the Apostles and you read about Paul and when he comes in Acts 19 to actually work with the, uh, with the church in Ephesus, you see a similar type of thing. It's not written out as in, Paul now went and he declared this and that to the spiritual powers that were ruling. But as you have this understanding of what we've seen from Elijah, you start to be able to see that this does happen, and this is how Paul himself dealt with spiritual powers. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them were obstinate, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in, in the time, in the, oh, in the province of Asia, wrong page, that's what the problem was, who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. 
When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, I know you could say to me, well, Jonathan, where is the, where's all this spiritual warfare stuff going on in this passage? What on earth are you talking about? That doesn't, that's not very obvious. Well, look, when you go back and see, Paul came to Ephesus, and first of all, he just encompasses a few believers. They don't even actually know about the Holy Spirit. So he has to talk to them about the Holy Spirit, and he starts to lead them on. And then he starts to preach, and he starts to proclaim more about Jesus Christ. So he's engaging now on earth with the forces of darkness. He is proclaiming who Jesus is. He is declaring it. And see what starts to happen. After a little while, it says, as he entered the synagogue, he spoke there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But then you start to see, but some became obstinate. They refused to believe. They publicly maligned the way. Do you start to see the opposition arising? You see, as the proclamation of the word is going out, everything was peaceful and quiet beforehand in Ephesus. There weren't any real problems. But now the proclamation of the word is going out, there starts to become an upstir. There starts to become an uprising. People are actually resisting this. They're saying, this isn't the way to go. This guy's not preaching the right stuff. There starts to become a negativity that gets put across in the city of Ephesus. So now Paul has to take his disciples with him. He goes to a different place. And for another two years, he's teaching and proclaiming and convincing people about the word of God. But during this time, there's an upsurge of the presence of God. It's starting to affect the town because it says that Paul was able to do extraordinary miracles. You see, there's confrontation that is happening. There's a building. Paul would have been praying and praying and praying about the spiritual forces. But it's not all happening in five minutes. He's having to work at it, and he's having to be there. We're seeing that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured. You know, you, people getting out of their hankies. Flicking it past Paul. Touched him. When they get home, mum, mum, put it on. Blowing it on their mum or whatever. Oh, they're getting, they're getting completely healed. Don't you think this is starting to cause a stir? But now look what happens. Having had these things, there's beginning to become a spiritual awakening, but people are not fully awakened. Because what people see is like, I like the idea of this power. There's some sons who belong to one of the Jewish priests, and they start actually seeing like, we can have power like this. In the name of Paul, come out, you demon. So they're addressing one guy. What they didn't realize is this is a key guy. This is a man who has and is full of demonic power. So they start addressing him. This guy turns around and says, listen, Jesus Christ I know. Paul I know. Give me a hand. See, he is aware that they have spiritual. He is aware of these guys carrying an anointing. Demons know Jesus and they know how powerful he is. So they would have known about Paul. They would have known about Jesus. So who are you guys? Seven against one. This demonic guy overpowered. Strips them naked and they run out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, but look at what this encounter does. This encounter 
And we don't quite know what was going on here because it's not fully explained, but you can see the results of this encounter. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. Hadn't Paul been preaching for something like two and two and a quarter years to these people? But now the preaching suddenly starts to happen again because now Paul had won in the spiritual realm. And what happens is these people that were coming to the meetings, oh yeah, it's true, actually, there is a bit of synchronism in my life. I'm doing two things at once. I'm serving these other idols. I'm doing a little bit of witchcraft in the trial. They start to bring out all of their witchcraft. Things. They start to openly, publicly confess. And you see the turning. Tide is being completely turned. And so now they come out and it says, a number who had practiced sorcery, a number, came and bought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. What does that mean? Let me tell you, a drachma was a silver coin and it represented a day's wages. So calculating it on the basis of the minimum wage, that would mean something like 48 pounds would be one drachma. These scrolls and everything that were burnt were 50,000 drachmas. In today's money, we're talking about the value of two and a half million pounds. Okay? Suddenly you can see, wow. Just imagine if everybody actually bought out their TVs and just smashed them. As, as an example, what does a video player cost, a DVD player cost? 100 pounds or something? And you suddenly got a mountain of stuff it's two and a half million quid's worth. Listen, something had hit this city. Something had transformed. The battle had been won. Now, it's very interesting. I'm talking to you like this from the story of Acts. If you go over to Paul's letter when he is writing to the Ephesians, what are the things he writes? In chapter 6 there, he starts to talk about, he says this, chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, he says to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. See how he's addressing them about spiritual warfare issues. And then he goes on to say, for our struggle, as you might well know, you could say, our struggle, he says to them, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And then he goes on to that famous passage about us needing to put on the full armor of God. But can you see, this isn't just like, when you're reading the, the letter to, to the Ephesians, you're thinking, oh yeah, that's what Paul's saying. When you put it into context of what he was doing in that city, you start to see, in Ephesus, there was spiritual encounter. In Ephesus, there was a change in the spiritual atmosphere. And it affected the people so that many people came through to salvation. Many people's lives were turned around. It's just like us here. You know what? Many people are Christians. Living according to God's ways and seeking to do that. If the presence of God came with such power, I can... I wouldn't be surprised at all to see many people coming out and saying, look, you don't know this. This has been my secret. This is the stuff I've walked in. Yeah, because when he comes, it brings everything up to the light. It shows things for what they were. People start to say, look, you know what? I haven't lived in the fullness of what he's got for me. I've been scratching around at the surface. Then he's the 
present time in us. The spiritual battles were won. Now, we, we're running out of time here this morning, but I mean, I can go on and talk to you about Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 10 in Daniel, it talks about how that Daniel had actually received a vision from God and he'd got some information from God. And uh, he didn't understand what he'd been shown. And he was so moved about it that it says that Daniel went back to God. And he started to say, God, you need to tell me. You, you, I need to understand this. And he went into a fasting, and it was three weeks later that he has another encounter when an angel comes to him. And the angel says, like, as soon as you started praying, Daniel, man of God, I was on my way. But I got hindered by the prince of Persia. And it wasn't until Michael came to help me overcome him that we've been able to get through to you. As soon as you started praying, the answer came back. And we have there a picture again about things in the spiritual realm that need to be overcome. How there are things in the spiritual realm that are preventing the prayers of the people of God being effective. And how we need to remain consistent and persistent and pressing through that we might see victory. This morning I was just encouraged to turn again to a book that I've read. And I don't know why I suddenly thought of this. Have you ever read the book The Heavenly Man about Brother Yun, a Chinese guy who was put in jail for his faith? He was a guy who was very active in the Chinese house church and he led many people to Christ, but he was wanted uh, desperately by the Chinese authorities. Eventually he was captured, put in jail. A frail guy. They thought he was going to be some sort of robust character. When they got him, he was a very frail little man. And uh, they put him in jail and uh, they tortured him badly, beat him. And uh, shortly after he arrived in jail, he was put in this jail in this cell along with a, a number of other hardened criminals, people who had actually done bad things. On the first day there, he was able to have a bit of time and he, he proclaimed to them that he was a pastor, he was there for his faith, and he was able to share a little bit about, about that. Then God led him into a fast. And it was a supernatural fast because he began to fast without food and without water. And uh, God told him to be silent. Now during this period of time, he was taken a number of times before the authorities who beat him and uh, used sort of uh, electric rods against him, all sorts of horrible stuff. As he carried on with this fast, no water, no food at all. Forty days in, he was extremely weak. He actually had to be carried around. But about 40 days in, he had a vision where God showed him that things were going to get worse. And the authorities stirred up the men in his cell against him. They started to make life more difficult. These men actually used to urinate on him and throw him into their filth. It was absolutely terrible. As you read it, you read this man being broken. But he continued not to speak. He continued to fast. 74 days, and God released him. He had been carried around. He was carried back to the cell where these guys, a guy had just seen him being beaten again. As he came back into the cell carrying him, he started weeping. But the other guys were abusing him again. And God gave him strength. And they were amazed because he suddenly stood up and he started preaching. And he turned around to the guys in his cell and he started to tell them about Jesus. How they needed Jesus. Many 
fell to their knees. The atmosphere of the house changed. You see, Brother Ewan, through this fast, through God's working, began to believe in God. There was now Jesus Christ who was ruling in his house. Now the authorities called him and they said, we have, and he didn't know what they were going to say, we have another terrible criminal in our jail for nobody knows how to deal with. We're sending him into your house because we believe that you can do something. And he gathered those people around. He was now in the act of discipling a group of men and leading them. And he led them to love this man Jesus so that his life could be Folks, this is, I'm not just talking about a story of Elijah or things that in some ways seem to go a little bit over our heads and we can't quite get hold of them. This is what the church needs to write. Bromley is held in the grip of spiritual powers of darkness. The prince of the power of the air is ruling over the nation. But the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ has come to us because he has come to set us free. He has cancelled the things that were arrayed against us. The things that the enemy wants to have against our lives. The reason he wants to whisper in our ears and say, you're not good enough. You're unable to do this. Don't forget you do this. Don't forget you do that. Don't forget you feel weak. Don't forget sometimes you don't. Don't forget sometimes you say the wrong things. Don't forget that you lie. You're getting this bombardment. But Jesus is saying, listen, you remember all of those things that he's got written down against you? I have nailed them to the cross. I have broken their power. I have defeated the enemy. Jesus, you go back to Colossians and read there in Colossians 2 what it talks about how he overcame, how he has conquered the powers of darkness, how they have been arrayed and he has broken their authority. And this is what he has given to us. In these days, church, we need to start arising and praying in a different way. Not just saying we know how to do all this, but rather coming before God and saying, God, you must teach us how. We can prevail. You must teach us how we can overcome, how we can have authority to tear down the spirits of darkness over our town so that we might start to see not just one or two people being saved, not just one or two churches coming together, but start to see a transformation, a transformation over our borough because of what Jesus has done. The secret of the cross is not supposed to be kept secret. It is supposed to be being released through the, through the lips of believers to declare to people, you no longer need to live in bondage. Even this morning, can I ask you, have you come here in a broken condition? Have you come here because you don't know of Jesus Christ? Have you come here because you know that you've done wrong and that somehow their oppression of that wrong is still seeming to hold you down? Have you come here and you think like, well, my life's all right. Listen, your life is not all right. Without God, we are facing an eternity of being in hell forever. But God never wanted man to go to hell. God has destined man to rule over his creation. And he has called him forth to do that. 
There is purpose in your life that has been corrupted, but God wants to bring you back on track. It is time for us to say, God, we need you. We don't know you fully, but we want to know. We need to know. You must teach us your ways so we can respond to you. Have you ever given your life to Jesus? Have you ever come to that point where you have said, I need to know that my sin, that which I have done wrong, is forgiven? Because if you haven't, you're still living under what the Bible would call the wrath of God. But God sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Being able to proclaim that everlasting life to others and also knowing the power and authority of the risen Jesus Christ to overcome the powers of darkness so that we might see his kingdom being instituted and we might see the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness, the goodness of God, the self-control that God enables us to have being shown all around us in the lives of people. This is the calling that we have been given. This is what God has done for us. And we need to arise. If you have never had that opportunity of giving your life to Jesus Christ, today is another one of those opportunities when you can do that. We can just come before him and pray and ask him to come and meet with us. But it's not just about, oh, I pray, now let me go back and live my life as I want to. When we come to Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, it's not about me, it's about what you have given me. And I come to receive your life that I may now live according to your ways for the rest of my life. And he can release us from that. For those of us who have known that for many years, the challenge we have is, are we living in the fullness of what Christ has won for? Or are we just saying, oh, we're Christians, we're Christians? See, we've not just been called to be Christians, we have been called to be world changers. We have been called to be a people who, through the power of God, can do extraordinary miracles with those around us. Maybe it's like Paul, we want to see transformation of our city. Well, it's not going to take just a couple of days. This is taking time of seeking God and of calling upon him with other people to see a transformation but he is able. Even in this day and age, it is not impossible for God to raise up his servants to accomplish these things. Let us pray together. Father, we bow before you. Lord, I pray that you would take these words, or God, the things that you desire to communicate to our hearts, and you would let your truth rest in our hearts. Lord, do not allow the enemy to snatch away, oh God, the truth of your divine purpose and the calling that you have placed upon us. Enable your people to arise with faith and confidence in what you have done, the Lord, that we may accomplish your purpose for our lives, for your church in this day, in this nation, Father, at this time. We ask for that in Lord, we pray, O oh God, for every person. Father, for those that don't yet know you, will you draw their hearts and their minds towards you? Let them know of your goodness, O oh God, that, Father, that they may seek and serve you with their lives today and always. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or you're after more information about Bromley Town Church, do visit our website, www.bromleytownchurch.com.